0: And sluts is all alike just love teasing a man you see that she heard that but she wouldn't turn around gotta remember one thing sluts is cagey she ain't never gonna lose that slut look no matter how hard she tries because there's always gonna be a little too much rouge on the cheeks and a little too much mascara in the eyes there's always gonna be a little too much of everything Now, why do you think she wears so much lipstick? It's because she knows that by the end of the night she's going to be kissing so many men and she's going to need that much so it'll last. Man, I'm going to tell you something. You put a diamond on a slut and it'll turn to rhinestone. She's got cash registers in her eyes that keep lighting up sales, sales. Every man that she ever slept with has left his mark on her face. Now, you look at that slash on her face. How do you think that got there? Well, her new lover come home, found her in bed with another man, and took his fine leather belt to her face, but it didn't work because you can't never beat the slut out of a slut. It's like a disease, man. There ain't no cure for it, except men and lots of them. Thanks, why not you give the girl a break? It ain't no fault the way she is. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Man, if you believe that, you believe anything. Uh, I'm going to tell you something. There's only two ways for a woman in this life. Either an honest wife or a low-lying slut. That bitch, I could make her right here and now, and she'd let me. You know why? she can't say no. Ain't that the truth, sweetheart? That'll get you hot, won't it? I mean, won't that make you feel all hot inside?
1: Radio Drome. Welcome to another episode of Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is the late, but totally worth it, Peter Godzik. Absolutely. And as I said last week, Cecil is off this week and next week, so Fred is filling in. Hello. He's short to the point. Well, yep. before, we, before we get into the topic, guys need to go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E. And you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping. Just use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. So tonight, we're going to make a positive episode. I'm hoping. We each have certain actors that we all gravitate to. That It doesn't matter if it's a TV movie or if it were the 90s, like an FMV game or something. There's always a couple of actors where you go, I will watch that guy in anything. I don't care how crap it is. I will watch that guy in anything. Because even in a crap movie, there are certain actors that are never crap. So each of us have picked five different actors we will go out of our way for, and that's who we're going to dish on tonight. So Fred, as the guest, Hmm. who is your first you'll watch in anything actor?
2: Well, I think I'll pick an easy one, one that I think a lot of people know of, but was definitely an early influence. I'd like to just say ahead of time that I tried to pick a few offbeat ones. There's actors out there I think we've we all know like Clint Eastwood's one. I would see anything with the guy in it for the most part. I uh, loved his movies for years, but I'm going to pick a few more unusual ones, but we'll start with a well-known one here first, and that's Kurt Russell. To say I literally grew up with Kurt Russell is uh, not an untrue statement. The first things I ever saw him in were Disney movies, back when they would show in the theater. There were films like The Computer Wore Tennis Shoes, Now You See Him Now You Don't, The Strongest Man in the World. I don't know if anybody or this this audience will know these films at all, but these were the Disney staples back in the day during the 70s. As time went on, I would see him in and out of things. But the things he did as an adult just after Disney, for the most part, I didn't see until a little bit later, and that was after the film where I took notice of Kurt Russell, and that was Escape from New York. If you asked most of my generation, there's going to be one of two things that will stand out for them with Kurt Russell. That's, of course, the Disney movies, because they were pretty big, and he was a pretty big star at that time. And escape from New York. And these two, two things are actually an interesting contrast because it was escape from New York that Russell did to break out of that Disney mold. He wanted to do something a hundred percent opposite. Anything anyone knew of him that's what you know he loved the idea that this guy was a criminal and an outlaw that it was set in the future this was the polar opposite of kurt russell and his career
1: and it's also kind of ironic that that's the reason the producers didn't want him as snake because yes, the outlaw uh, was all the disney list. stuff they were like this guy can't be an action hero
2: yeah it's actually uh, interesting to note that even john carpenter wasn't sure about kurt for the role not at first because uh, carpenter had Actually worked with Russell before this. They did the Elvis TV miniseries together, where Russell played Elvis, and it's it's a very good miniseries. I saw it later on, but it's actually really good and really worth checking out. There's no denying Russell would go on to become Snake Plissken. He said that he himself didn't know he didn't know how to play it, and so he said, "I'll just play it like Clint Eastwood would," (laughs) and that's why he talks, you know, with his teeth clenched. And it was definitely the role where. He stood out for me. It popped. And so it became that thing where... I had to see him in everything. And I'll tell you what, throughout the 80s, there was little that you didn't see him in. He really did kind of own, especially the early 80s, Escape from New York. And, you know, we can't cover everything, obviously. We each have a lot of guys we want to go through here. So just to highlight, of course, we have the wonderful one-two punch of Escape from New York and The Thing. So we worked with Carpenter back-to-back in two completely different types of characters. McCready is... Much different than Plissken. He's more laid back. You know, Pliskin's more proactive. McCready's more laid back. And eh, we'll just see what happens. Uh, he did other films, though, that uh, you don't hear talked about a lot, like Silkwood, a drama with Meryl Streep based on the uh, the real lady who tried to blow the whistle on how, what do you call those? Those radioactive towers. Uh, I can't think of what you call them. All of a sudden, my brain froze up. But how they dealt with radioactivity and how they weren't that safe good movie, good good character in that, a real person. Swing Shift, which was 83. He did that with Goldie Hawn, who, of course, he would go on to be a life partner with for, well, most of his life. He would do a variety of different films, like The Mean Season, which was a thriller. Best of Times, which was a comedy with Rob Williams in 85. 86, creating the trinity of John Carpenter films. Big Trouble in Little China. I think most of us here adore that film,
3: uh, which is such God. an overlooked uh, good movie too. Like so Isn't many people it? don't understand that that's like a satire.
2: Yeah, they miss that. Indeed, they miss that. I, indeed, <laughs> it's so much fun. It, I don't know. It's it's a you're gonna have a career with a director. Wouldn't you want that career? I mean, come on, Escape from New York, a thing, and Big Trouble Little China. That like, Trinity, if anything,
3: shows it shows how. um how good he is as an actor how diverse he is with his acting style because those are three very different characters
2: i agree the versatility he shows in just those three films is perfect and i think Mm. it's funny that over the rest of his career with with a few exceptions russell would start to become a type a little bit uh, sort of the yeah he you know he has the charm if you're going to describe his his acting style there's no doubt that Russell has a charm. He has that smile that's very disarming. It's utilized in a lot of movies. It's funny. They either go with the charming character of him, like he did a movie, uh, with, um, Robert Zemeckis before Zemeckis did Back to the Future called Used Cars. I highly recommend you see this he's movie because it's insane. Even in that. He he is is something so like,
3: uh, Overboard, which is pretty much about like Stockholm Syndrome, he's still incredibly charming in that movie.
2: Charming. a uh,
3: Tango and Cash. Oh God, he's great in that. You know what, that that was originally meant to be switched. It was going to be stallone playing his character and he was going to be playing more stallone's character but they I both mean, wanted to play the the opposites which i think is what opposite. made that movie work
2: I, I agree because he is cash
3: yeah he is, absolutely uh, uh,
2: lots of great movies if i'm gonna oh well, one more i'm gonna bring up as far as that i adore uh tombstone that oh, may be one of the most quotable movies in history
3: that's one of the best westerns i think ever made that's a great great movie
2: great editing, great acting, great dialogue. Seriously, it's, you know, I not to diverge from Russell too much, but Val Kilmar, probably at his best
3: uh, excellent in that,
2: that film. film. Yeah. The rest of his career is it's varied. The only film I apps I did not like him in. There's only one movie I didn't like him in, and I can't blame him. It's more the role, it's more the movie. It's a film called Captain Ron with Martin Short. It's, it's how to use Kurt Russell wrong. In that was kind of a peculiar
3: way. movie because you could understand kind of where they were coming from. It was almost like mm-hmm. a parody of Snake Plissken because he has like the eye patch and everything, but it was, a, a it really bit. was pretty, it was pretty crappy.
2: It was, they, I think the problem is they didn't have a, you know, he was supposed to be like a charming, sleazy, like you said, a Snake Plissken, but like a pirate because it takes place on a boat and it just doesn't work it it just one of those films that fails and a few others Would you know soldier we've all talked about that one a million times great little film i like
3: soldier a lot that's a i I thought that was one of his better like later roles where he proved that he could still do very different stuff because that that was a very out of character kurt russell movie kill them all i agree
2: Well, one of the words that I think is going to be coming up a lot, and I don't want to overuse it just yet, but is stoic. Russell could do stoic. But it was definitely this, if you're going to use that word, this was him being his most Charles Bronson. Oh, he
3: really he really (laughs) Uh, pulled it off.
2: He does. He's very quiet. He acts with his eyes. It always irritated me when I saw reviews saying that there's barely any dialogue, that Russell barely acted. I'm like, did you see the same movie I did? (laughs) Because throughout the whole film, he shows... He shows hatred, he shows pain as in like sadness. The scene where they kick him out of the village, the look in his eyes, it's like a puppy that just got mm. kicked seriously i don't know what they were watching but it wasn't the film i saw he slowed down a little bit over the years but my gosh he's still in big movies you know death proof he's in the fa- uh, fast and the furious films uh bone tomahawk bone tomahawk. Bon tomahawk yeah uh, and of course gardens of the galaxy recently so the guy is which was still awesome knocking in. him out yeah he's knocking him out of the park so just a guy i will always go back to
3: my number one is going to be peter weller
1: Peter Weller is always awesome.
2: It's going
3: to be the one I'll start with. And that's because that was, um I think, the, the first two earliest memories I have of film, of watching movies with my dad, would be Robocop and it would be Terminator. Now, I figured Arnold Schwarzenegger would be kind of an obvious choice. I mean, who, who doesn't love Schwarzenegger? Arnie? But Peter Weller always stood out to me um, just because Robocop is such an early memory for me. And I always really loved that character. I always really loved that portrayal, particularly from the first movie. And since seeing that movie, I had wanted to see other Peter Weller films, and I came to find that he would always kind of do something different. He would never really play kind of the same character. I mean, you, you've got him in Robocop, but then you've got him doing something silly like uh Buckaroo Bonsai, and you've got him being charming and suave and something like uh like Shake, Shakedown slash Blue Jean Cop. You've got him playing what I would consider to be... Next to Michael Keaton, the best portrayal of, of Batman when he voiced, uh, Batman and Dark Knight Returns, uh, the animated two-parter. Just, he's done so many, so many great things. M- much like Kurt Russell, he's always done kind of something different with his, with his characters, which I've always liked. And he's not necessarily a, he was never like a conventional leading man. He's kind of gangly. He's kind of, he's always been kind of on the, on the thinner side more than most actors are, but he's got this, this commanding presence on screen, this great voice, these really piercing eyes um and he's always played really really interesting characters which makes me want to see him anytime i hear hear that he's in anything i'll check it out like i watched this weird like um it was a uh, it was a Gary Daniels underground street fighting MMA type movie. I forget what it was called. Peter Weller played the villain in it, and he made the movie watchable because of how like sleazy he plays it. Because normally you don't see him as a villain, which which made me interested in watching Dexter. Because I find out I found out he was gonna come in and play a serial killer in that show, and he was awesome. He knocked it out of the fucking he, he park. He wasn't a serial killer he was, a, kind of, he was
1: an ex cop trying to catch Dexter in that though.
3: Oh yeah, that's right, that's right. I might have been thinking of, uh, John Lithgow. But yeah, he was, he was really good in, in that as well. He was kind of an, an antagonist to, to Dexter in a way. Cause he, he did play it as creep.
1: Oh, oh, oh he uh. was a super corrupt cop. Yes. But he,
3: I mean, oh, yeah, he was, he was yeah, a he cop was trying to catch Dexter. Killing.
1: Total sleazeball.
3: Mm-hmm. But he was great. He played it fantastically, even though he usually plays more of, more of a charming kind of kind of intense uh good guy um, I, I can't
1: i can't remember the first time the movie was really early in his career it's pre-robocop where he plays an abusive stepfather that smacks the his wife and kid around and you're just oh, kind of like seeing that you're like oh come on peter weller what'd you do <laughs> it, it almost hurts yet to see him do it yeah because yeah. you're like oh i love peter weller and he's smacking the kid around and it's like oh come on what would hard, the hard to actually bands I do? Uh,
3: it's hard to hate him even in movies that he does that that are kind of shitty he still ends up being quite likable as a character actor and and in terms of his performance i think it's what's what's the um rat movie he did it was unknown origin of Unknown Origin. origin. Yeah. I hated that movie. I thought it was <laughs> really, really shit, it was. but it's just, it's watching Peter Weller trying to catch a giant rat is what ma- makes it watchable. I think anybody else in the movie, <laughs> it would have, you would have turned it off within the first 10 minutes. It's true. So I've, I've always really liked, uh, like Peter Weller a lot. He's one of my, my top. If I find out he's in anything, I'll watch it. My
1: pick would be, we did a whole episode on it. Fred, you weren't in this one, but Michael Ironside. I will watch anything with Michael Ironside. I remember back when I was married, my ex-wife. She always watched Lifetime movies a lot. The Lifetime movie. I don't remember what movie it was, and I don't remember if it was made for Lifetime or if it was just some old movie that they were, some old TV movie that they were showing. I'm just milling around. She's, you know, watching this. I'm like in the kitchen or something. All of a sudden, I hear Michael Ironside. I'm like, what? I come in and he's he's playing (laughs) one of the cops. You know, it's one of those movies where you know the husband kills the wife, and then they can't find the body. You know, a typical Lifetime movie kind of thing. Mm. And I'm like michael ironside is one of the cops i just sat down and watched it with her and i'm like i'm watching a movie on
3: lifetime movie network oh my god but then i
1: justified it to myself but i'm watching it for michael ironside he's he's just one of those actors
3: oh no he's great every every performance he delivers is fantastic
1: and when and even when he clearly doesn't want to be in the movie children of the corn six he still doesn't (laughs) half-ass it he still gives a michael ironside performance
3: you know he's always really cool no matter what he does and I, I gotta also bring it up third best batman performance when he played frank miller's dark knight returns batman as well in the 90s batman cartoon See, i, I, believe I, I agree I believe it's legends of the dark knight was the episode i, and he I, I plays. think that was it yeah but I, i'm gonna fight and with he you. was so so good like he he fit that version of batman so perfectly i go back and rewatch just that segment of that episode just to hear michael ironside is Batman and how perfectly that actually fits. And now every time I read that comic, I'm either hearing Peter Weller or I'm hearing Michael Ironside.
1: See, I gotta argue with you on that one. As much as I thought Peter Weller did a fine job, I thought Ironside's Dark Knight was better. I gotta go Ironside over Weller on Batman.
3: I guess you could call it maybe that they're the second best, like two point five. Like they both kind of edge each other out over that being a perfect voice for that version of of the character. Because I just for, for his segment alone, that's one of the best episodes of, of the 90s Batman series.
2: Well, I just gotta just add into this Batman discussion that, uh, Mike, I was so disappointed that Ironside didn't get to be
3: Batman again
2: when they did the Frank Miller's animated movie.
3: Oh, that would have been they, so they, cool.
2: It would have been. And I gotta go with Josh on this because Michael Ironside has just how he does the one line where he goes, rubber bullets. I promise <laughs> uh, he, he delivers that with such a it, it's perfect it's just perfect he's got that great voice he's got that that Darth Vader-esque voice that you want to hear you're pulled into it. I mean we're guys you know and we're compelled uh, Josh even said he heard his voice from the other room and yeah side's Great. Glad that he's still acting. I'm glad that he does voice work in games and cartoons, and I-, I hope he sticks around to the very end.
3: I think what they should do, because he voiced um Darkseid a lot on uh, mm-hmm. the 90s Superman and 90s Justice League cartoon, wouldn't that be great if they brought him back to actually voice the live-action version? For the like Justice League sequel, I think that that could be fantastic if they used him him as a voice template for that character. I'm I'm hoping they do something like that.
1: I'm in. Where do I sign? <laughs> well, and then see to, to to me when it comes to Ironside, the only thing I don't like is when this happens more in TV shows when they don't know how to use him. Like as much hmm. as I loved Justified, I'm like, oh my god, Michael Ironside is going to be unjustified this week. Oh. He's in the B-plot, and he's only a supporting character in the B-plot. Did you guys just waste Michael Ironside here? Same thing on Burn Notice. Hey, he's in Burn Notice, and he's killed before the opening titles.
3: Do you not know how to use Michael Ironside, TV producers? I think unfortunately he's a bit too humble for his own good because I think to him he just sort of sees himself as a as a character actor and he's just he's just working for the the sake of working. Like if you've seen any, I'm sure you've seen many interviews with him, but he's incredibly humble when it comes to his career.
1: And he doesn't do many interviews. He hates being interviewed because kind of intimated at this Canadian interview, it makes the, the- George
3: uh, Strombolopoulos one.
1: I, it, it might be. I don't remember. It's where he was sitting down with him and talking about overcoming his cancer and all that.
3: Yes, yes, that's the one. And that's he, a great interview a, too. Yeah. That's a good one.
1: And he, he kind of is like, you know, what we're doing right now makes it seem like I'm more important than anybody else in this room and he just he just <laughs> seems so down to earth. I would love to interview him, you know,
3: but he he was he was more important than anybody in that room. He's Michael freaking Ironside. He's done how many movies with how many like memorable performances and stuff. It's it's so weird that he I think didn't he say that he, he felt like heartbroken that he, I think it was he injured his legs or something and that he couldn't be a roofer anymore. Yeah. And the guy just looked at him and was like, but you're, a, you're an actor. You know, that, that's like, that's what's paying your bills is acting. He was like, Oh, I'm just going to get into acting to pay the, pay the extra bills I need to pay. It's so weird the way he looks at it that way. Like he, I think he's more of a, He's a laborer first and an actor second, which is insane considering how good of an actor he is.
1: Disarms people with his humbleness. He, yeah, yeah, he does. <laughs> I'm
3: sorry. What is it with uh, that? Like he he does seem to lose his arms in just about everything. You get total recall. You even got something as recent as like the machinist loses his arm. He loses
1: his arm uh, in Starship Troopers. Loses his arm in the in the. uh He already ha- the has no
3: arm at the beginning well, of that movie. Right, but I'm just
1: saying he lost his <laughs> arm really at some point the in the movie. really jumped the gun on that one. It's
3: like, well, got Michael Ironside start making the prosthetic for his lost arm. We're not going to do a scene of it. No, he's just not going to have an arm.
2: Exactly. I guess when it comes to that, when it comes to that kind of performance, you just got to hand it to him. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Wah, wah. Well, I think I I thought I'd go with for my next pick. Uh, well, a lot of these guys I grew up with, but this was a little more off the beaten path for a, a young person to know about because I I used to watch a lot of late night TV. I didn't sleep much. As a kid, I used to suffer from chronic night terrors, so uh, I was up a lot, very late at night. I saw a movie on television called Medium Cool, which was this, like, kind of hip 60s movie about journalism and where television journalism was going. It's it's a very fast-paced, the editing is crazy, it's, it's a very almost, I don't want to call it psychedelic, but it does have that tone to it. And it was starring this guy named Robert Forrester. What made this interesting is that I saw this movie, Medium Cool, and then I can't tell you exactly how long. Well, let's say within the next few weeks or maybe very few months, I end up going to the theater to see a movie called The Black Hole, In 1979, there was this Robert Forrester guy again. I had just (laughs) seen him in this other movie. Completely different characters. Medium cool. He's kind of a hip, sleazy journalist type. Black Hole. He's the captain of the ship. Very... uh, Stoic. Back to that word stoic. Yep, I was Mm. just leading there. Right back to that word stoic. Doesn't talk much. Acts more with his eyes. He has a presence. Dominates a scene with just his presence, which is interesting if you look at so many of his other roles. You'll see that he tends to play these morally gray characters a lot. I think he's very similar to another person on my list, which we'll come back to. Uh, seems to prefer the characters that are morally gray. He doesn't necessarily like flat out good guys or flat out bad guys. He loves that middle ground, and he excels at it. Then again, saw him very soon after that on HBO in a film called Alligator. That introduced me to the writing of John Sayles, who became an early hero of mine because he wrote and directed and he wrote movies for Hollywood just so he could make his own films, his own independent films. That's why John Sayles became a hero of mine. Hmm. It was directed by Lewis Teague, though. Robert Forster, again, I think he grounds that movie in a performance that in anybody else, this would be a, a cheap Jaws knockoff. But you actually have a fairly decent script by John Sayles. And you have a really decent performance by Robert Forrester, who makes you care about this cop, who's not your, again, not your straight hero. He's afraid. He's lost a partner. He's blamed for losing that partner. The other cops don't like him. So this is not your typical go get hero. We hadn't quite entered that Stallone-Schwarzenegger era, with the canon films and the the bravado. These heroes were still more like Stallone's you know, Rambo in the original First Blood, the troubled, flawed character. So if you've never seen 1980s Alligator, seriously, go find a copy. It, it is, and when the Alligator comes out of the uh, the street, you'll you'll have a good time, I promise. Mm. From there, he does a, a very unusual variety of films, two of which are interesting because they come from similar places. You have 82's Vigilante. Oh, in that is
0: a,
3: one of... It's it's funny because its name is Vigilante, but I would consider it to be one of the best Vigilante movies ever made. That is uh... a fantastic film.
2: I'm not a big fan, to be honest with you. Uh I was going to get into that. However, his performance... Actually, this is one of those movies where everybody's performance is good. And I still say it's worth seeing. It's still worth watching. I was just he's really, really sympathetic. He's different in it. Again, he's not your Charles Bronson.
3: No, no. He's a very uh, like normal guy in that movie. And everybody, I think, yeah. expects to watch that movie thinking that it's going to be a Fred Williamson film. But it's really more of a Robert Forrester film. The it movie is. focuses a lot more on the the troubles and the arc of of his character far more than Fred Williamson who's kind of in there as almost like more of the tease like you think it's going to be more of this like straight lace kind of action movie about this vigilante group going up and beating up thugs and stuff but it's really more about this very normal middle class guy who you know his His kid dies. His wife resents him for that happening. Uh, She ends up leaving him. And then that that causes Forrester to to join that vigilante group and kind of do it just out of out of the resentment that he's feeling toward the law and toward what's going on on the on the streets. It's so much more about his character and it's more of more of like a character study than it is an action movie.
2: I agree because I think it almost should be called the reluctant vigilante. Yes. Uh Because, again, he doesn't go out there and just start killing. Uh, it's not like if you've seen Tom Skerritt in Fighting Back where mm. he just sort of instantly embraces this, this vigilante lifestyle. As you say, it's a much more thoughtful piece. And it's it, I would dare say it's a much more intelligent piece, yeah, uh, I,
3: I think William Lustig really had an interesting idea when it comes to that one. It's different
2: it, it and I think that my disappointment even came from I was expecting a different movie
3: like again, and, the Fred Williamson action film. Well, I and will, he ended up getting this more like uh almost it's almost more like the first like Death Wish movie because it, it takes yeah, him a while yeah. to actually become time. the the vigilante.
2: Yeah, I would still say that perhaps by the end, it doesn't quite live up to its potential, personally, but it's a good movie. Uh, Again, great performance. I'm with uh, Pitara on that one. It's Worth seeing. It's good acting. little disappointing. But the film I really wanted to kind of highlight between the two of them was a movie called Walking uh, Walking the Edge in 85. Oh, the Charles Band these, one. Are t- these are two very similar movies. Uh, they both deal with vigilanteism, but now Robert Forster isn't at the, the heart of it. Uh He's accidentally caught up in it. He has his own concerns, but this time it's a, a woman seeking revenge for the murder of her child and her husband. He, again, here we go. The reluctant Hero. He's reluctantly involved. He doesn't want to get involved in this, and then of course by the end he's just fully, you know, buried in this thing. Mm. I think I prefer Walking the Edge better. I I just prefer it for as a story. Let's put it that way. I think perhaps uh, they're both great performances from him. Very different performances from him. He's more animated in Walking the Edge than he is in People Vigilante. Angry. Uh, but. Oh, very, uh, because there's a lot of screaming, a lot of swearing,
1: and Walking the Edge. And Walking the Edge is a much uh, sleazier, the, the tone, it, it's a much more that kind of wet, used up, inner city kind of visual look. It, it, it's a sleazier movie. For walking the edge. Oh,
2: very, very. These characters definitely take a drive on the dark side. There's no doubt. Actually, I haven't um, seen
3: that one, but it sounds it sounds great. Band band? I it. it's an
2: early Empire film. Ooh. Uh, I, I recommend it. It's not don't expect vigilante though. It's not that kind of movie, but it's got Joe Spinal. I never
3: skin. I never expect Anything anymore? I'll just watch a movie, and I'm like, okay, let's see what cool. happens.
2: Well, Joe Spinell is so slimy in it. I, when isn't love he how
3: slimy.
2: <laughs> I, I mean, he is a lizard in this one. Moving it's on. Funny then, with
3: Joe Spinell. He's either like incredibly charming, or he's the biggest creep ever. There's, there's no middle ground for that guy.
2: This is going to probably wrap up at least this quick period. There's one more movie he did in the 80s that sort of stood out for his performance, and that was Delta Force, because he's Oh, when clinging, he did Brownface? And, uh, he's an he's a Islamic terrorist in this one. Which and, is so weird. <laughs> uh, it's so bizarre to see him in this role. If you watch these other films and then watch Delta Force, you're going to feel like you just did a U-turn.
3: You have to uh, really um, pay attention, too, to know that it's him, too.
2: Yes, and it's not even a typical canon film until, like, the last ten minutes of the movie. <laughs> and then it turns into a canon movie. To round this off, he, of course, had a resurgence in the 90s. This little-known director, some people may have heard of him, called Quentin Tarantino. I, I was actually uh, going to say, him that's
1: in... my favorite Robert Forster. I love um, his Max Cherry in Jackie Brown. Plays. Oh, he's he, great he in Jackie plays Brown. plays it so multi-layered. This guy who t- t- he wants to do the right thing but he really doesn't want to get involved. And he's even when there's an action scene, he's so laid back and almost bored that there's an action scene happening. I love Max Cherry, man. Well, I guess I don't have to describe that one. <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> Two quick films. If you want to check out something not as recent, it's from 2000s. I recommend a couple little movies he did, one called Diamond Men uh, with Donnie Wahlberg, and the other is called Road to Riches. Neither of these are action thrillers. They're actually more <laughs> slice-of-life films. Just wanted to let you know. But to showcase that, again, this man can do anything.
3: Uh, and if you want an any action role. thriller, you can check him out in Maniac Cop 3, where he's just begging for Quentin Tarantino to discover it. Or scan, or scanner cop
1: where you can just see the whole time he's going, when is Tarantino gonna revive my career? Oh, was Scanner Cop 2, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it might, it no, might, be, might be Scanner Cop 2 because I think he had the long hair and the motorcycle jacket. How many jacket.
3: F- can Scanner Cops were there? The, 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 there Too were many. only two.
1: Yeah, I actually think it might be Scanner Cop 2 that Forrester's in. But he, uh, that's one of those few times, <laughs> God, does he look bored. I mean, he looks legit. I don't want to be here,
3: you know? Well, of course, he's not even in a Scanners sequel. He's in a Scanners sub-sequel, for Christ's sake.
2: <laughs> yeah. This man, his, his IMDb is ridiculous. It reads like... The oh, records. he's in a lot of stuff.
3: And he's in tons and tons of stuff. Bill Paxton. Yes. Another one we did a whole I episode am, on a few years ago. Yes, we did, because he's fantastic. And unfortunately, he has left our mortal coil quite recently. But this guy is... I, I have been seeing him in movies since I since before I even knew who he was. Like, he, he shows up, I think, that frequently in stuff as minor roles, as side characters, as a character actor. You know, ever since before seeing the first Terminator when he he's one of the punks in that movie, he shows up in a lot of James Cameron stuff. He's in freaking Commando as, like... An air traffic guy or, or something. I think he's working for like the Navy and he, he says, uh, you must change course or you risk being shot down. And I remember even as a kid, I was like, that guy looks familiar. That guy looks familiar. What have I seen him in before? Peter, he was in Um, Pat Benatar music videos. Well he directed music videos.
2: A lot yeah, of people, he's, that's he's, how he started.
3: He's done he's so, He even showed heads. up in the, the end, I think. Well he's one of the, the characters in Titanic that's in present time. Yeah. I think he's yeah. one of the one of the people like, you know, that that's uh that that's looking at the that's I think that's He he's the one searching to for dig for the or not dig up, but whatever. Like he's he's there at the end with the old lady and the stupid fucking necklace thing. But he shows up in so much stuff and then when, when you actually give him the reins to be a lead He's phenomenal. Like, like a movie like, uh, Frailty. That's the one where he, he thinks. Uh, well, not to spoil the movie for anyone that, that hasn't seen it, but he believes that there are demons and we have to kill them and that we're given tools that are in the, the form of axes and, and things like that, and his son is Matthew McConaughey and, and some other douchebag, but he's he's fantastic in that movie.
1: I would say he even out-McConaughey's McConaughey in that movie.
3: Oh, he out-McConaughey's any, anybody without even trying. Um, but it's just different when McConaughey's in the movie, too. It, yeah. <laughs> they both do kind of have that, um, like, a Southern and kind of twang. Uh, to the way they talk like a, a very unique kind of voice but but just anytime I hear that that Bill Paxton is going to be in something to any effect like of course there's also goes back to like Predator 2 it's like there are these movies that I would see him in where he's like a side character and I'll recognize him from something even though he's always playing something quite different there's something about his his voice and his look and just the way he carries himself where you're like where have I seen that guy before and then you see him in something where he's the starring they're like oh that's bill paxton i saw him and you know he was in true lies as oh, just as a wormy wormy pathetic little dude he's so freaking funny in, in true lies and, and, and then you have him playing more of like like an alpha male kind of character in like predator 2 or even something that's very like lesser known uh slipstream with uh mark hamill a playing that bad guy which which is one of the great you you'd call it a concept high concept film because you barely ever see anything action wise because they clearly had no budget for it but it's all relying on the performances and luckily you have the performances of Bill Paxton playing the very cocksure kind of anti-hero and Mark Hamill as the villain and Bill Paxton was great in it even in a movie yep. that had next to no budget, and I think only ever got a VHS release that got transferred over to, to DVD. So anything um, I'm really up for watching with Bill Paxton in it, because I always think he's he's incredibly fun to watch because he's always going to bring something different to his performances, much like pretty much everybody that I'm that I'm going to be bringing up on my list. But even something as recent as a as a film like Nightcrawler, which already appealed to me a lot, I really like Jake Gyllenhaal, and I really enjoyed the idea of, of what the story was going to be for the movie. But as soon as I found out that, that Bill Paxton was going to be in it as almost like, like a major kind of secondary role, I had to see it. There was there's no way I wasn't seeing this movie and that's that's the the power of of Bill Paxton showing up in movies for me
2: I I can't say enough uh the the two films i'll just bring up quickly because one i'll be talking about very soon near dark he yes. is the he's one he's one of a triune of people in that film that absolutely make it I love him uh, the other film though
3: the uh, whole does cast not get of in, near dark is just perfect
2: I agree I couldn't agree more like the, nothing
3: uh, anything look. changed in in terms of the cast in terms of the performances would have made it an inferior film like that movie just works perfectly with everybody and i
1: in. i actually it's clockwork I agree. and i actually forgot when i showed that to my girlfriend a couple of months ago i actually forgot that the guy in the bar they let go was james Lagro. i forgot he was even in that <laughs> <laughs> Uh, We're going to be talking about that again real soon. And the other film,
2: if you have – this film never comes up. And I I shouldn't say never, but it so rarely comes up. And people need to see this film is One False Move. Bill Paxton, you want to see a tour de force. You want to say, this is a Bill Paxton movie. You have to see One False Move. I don't even want to tell you guys about it. Go out and find a copy. He's a sheriff of a small town, and some very bad people are on their way. Mm. That's all I'm going to tell you. It's really worth seeing. It's not what you're expecting. Check this if out. If that's the one
1: I'm thinking of, doesn't he play the character as sort of a dumb country hick who is very much smarter than what the, everyone gives him credit for?
3: Yes. Oh, kind of like everything also say that
1: Michael Moriarty plays. Yeah. Hey, you got to admit. <laughs> well, Michael Moriarty n- comes off as intelligent. Nobody's as dumb as I seem. <laughs> <laughs> My next pick, I, I am going to go with Sydney Eddie Mosian, better known to people as Sid Haig. I have mm. never seen Sid Haig be bad in something. I mean, even if it's he's a,
3: a brilliant, brilliant character actor. Even if
1: it's a walk-on role on Star Trek, or he was in the he had a completely wordless role as just like Thug Number Two in the first episode of the Shaft <laughs> TV show, and all this. I have never seen him be bad. Now he's been in bad things, yes. Sid Haig just has this commanding presence. First, you've got his size, the the beard with the bald head that he's almost always had. Although, personally, I think he looks weird like Spider Baby with no beard. He just looks wrong to me. It's kind (laughs) of like Burt Reynolds with no mustache. It's just wrong.
3: It's probably just seeing him with a with a beard for so many years and then you see him without it and it just looks wrong.
1: Exactly. But Sid Haig is just he always has such a screen presence. But like I said, he has no lines of dialogue in the first episode of the seventies shaft show. And I just I was watching that and I'm just like, is that, that's it. That's Jesus, that's Sid Haig. And he's just <laughs> a wordless thug. And it's like right away you recognize him. That's Sid Haig. I love Sid Haig. Can't say he's, he always looks like he wants to be in the movie. Cause if you guys have ever seen that Night of the Living Dead remake, the, the one with oh, the black farmers trash. or, or, or House of the Dead 2, he is clearly mm. in, I am not taking this seriously mode, which makes it fun. Even though the rest of those movies are played totally straight, he doesn't want to be there, but he's not half-assing it. Kind of go in the opposite direction.
3: Does that make sense? He's yes. still gonna give it an effort anyway, even if he, you know, he's probably happy that he's getting the roles to begin with because he's really more of like, uh, a smaller role on a, on a TV show or a movie kind of actor. So he's probably happy anytime he gets to do something that's, that's closer to being like a lead.
1: Well, and he also, the, the thing with Sid Haig is, you know, and a lot of the actors we're talking about, they were mainly movie guys who sometimes did TV. Sid did so much TV. He was that guy that was on every 80s or late 70s cop show in one episode as a thug. That was his thing. TV was where it was at for him. So to him, Mm, working in movies was just something you did between TV episodes. Where it's usually the other yeah. way around. Oh. He'll always be Dragos from Jason of Star Command for me. Always. Exactly. <laughs> or I remember him as Tex from Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Remember his sleazy cowboy character on that? Or what I was it? Was that. it
3: Planet Planet Terror? Was the movie he did right? Not Planet Terror. It was that was Planet Terror actually? Planet
1: of Terror. I think. Galaxy of te- Galaxy
3: of Terror. Galaxy, Galaxy of-, of Terror. Galaxy he of Terror. gets killed by his own severed what the hell arm. What was I thinking? Was that he the- gets killed by his own severed arm. Yes. What the hell is Planet Terror? Is that the fucking house yeah, movie? Yeah, Pl- yeah, Planet Terror is Rodriguez. Okay, I'm still obviously kind of drunk and hungover. Jesus. That's <laughs> because pretty I'm, fucking obvious I'm, right I'm now. Sitting,
1: I'm sitting here looking at his filmography. <laughs> I'm sitting here looking at his filmography. He's in Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, Police Story, Charlie's Angels, Heart to Heart, Quincy, one episode of each of these, Dukes of Hazard, TJ well, Hooker.
3: Show me? It was the clip where he, it was from some TV show where he plays this like weird, like misogynistic guy at a bar or a diner or something.
1: I, I, I highly recommend the TJ the Hooker episode, unfortunately titled Hooker's War, where he plays the gang leader and TJ <laughs> Hooker beats him up and he cries and begs for mercy and you go oh yeah oh my that, that, god that's not ego on shatner huh yeah because shatner could beat up sid <laughs> haig huh
3: well i think hilariously enough all sid haig did was prove that he's a better actor than shatner which is Honestly, not a fucking hard thing to do. I mean, Michael Ironside did that with the uh, visiting hours.
1: And see, no kidding. And the the thing I love about Sid Haig, especially with his TV work, he was such a chameleon. And I'll use that word later in one mm. of my picks. That he would be on the same show every season as a different character. He was on he was on <laughs> three different Fantasy Island episodes and four different Fall Guy episodes as different characters. That's amazing. You know, not many actors can pull that kind of thing off.
3: And you've we, got to hand it to to Rob Zombie for giving him uh giving Sid a chance, making him um whatever the the clown's name was. But that's one of the most memorable parts of the the House House of a Thousand Corpses and Devil's Rejects is Sid Haig's character. He's he's fantastic in those movies, and you can tell he's having having a lot of fun. He's probably very proud. That he gets to be in this this movie that's basically being like promoted as a as a blockbuster that gets to be a theatrical release and he gets to be a lead and he's really taking the reins and showing how how appreciative he is of that of that opportunity because he's great especially in in Devil's Rejects he's fantastic.
1: Well, and to go back to Jackie Brown, you don't know how ecstatic I was when I recognized him as the judge near the beginning of Jackie Brown. It's like,
3: oh my god, that yeah, is him. It's like, holy mm-hmm. crap,
1: is that Sid Haig as the well? First of all, how often does he get to play a good guy? Like a freaking judge, but it's like <laughs> that's Sid Haig as the judge. He has like three lines of oh, that's dialogue. Why I
3: didn't? It's likely why I didn't recognize him because he's actually playing a freaking good guy. Yeah,
1: he's the judge that uh, set, that sentences Jackie at the beginning.
3: Oh, it's amazing. Now i got to go rewatch it.
1: He's only in one scene, and he has like three lines of dialogue, dude. It's not a sit-hang
3: Whatever, movie. I'll
2: just
1: watch the beginning of the movie. Well, sadly, I haven't
2: seen a ton of his movies, and yet I've seen a ton of things with him in it. You know, he's just in so much. All I'd say is that the guy has that look. He looks like the guy that would probably mug you down a dark alleyway. <laughs> and what's interesting about him is that when he performs, he brings
1: humanity to every role he played, even some of the most vicious of killers. Is is just one of those guys. I mean, obviously his career, I don't want to say it's been on a downtick of late, but I'm looking at his IMDb, and almost everything is direct-to-video, shot on video, and I'm going. It's not the same uptick that you know he had after *The House of a Thousand Corpses* for a while, where he was in theatrical. Yeah, I mean, films. I think
3: I think Rob Zombie had a, had a good heart when it comes to that. He obviously wanted wanted the guy's career to excel as it deserves to, but it's it's all in who wants to cast him, and it, unfortunately, he has that look of. You know, thug number two on a cop show kind of thing. Cause it's, it's the basic, the, the basic prejudice of, of Hollywood to begin with. Like they, most, most Hollywood uh, producers or, or filmmakers or directors or studio execs don't care how good of an actor you are. They, they care about the look that you have. And if you, if you may notice nowadays, you get roles if you look like Chris Pine. If you're blonde and have a generic face, that seems to be the look they're going for. They're not going to get somebody who's genuinely fantastic, but might have a bit of an off-kilter look like Sid Haig, which is what I really miss about the 70s and the 80s, because we had a far more diverse range of actors. Uh, I'm going to go with Christopher Lambert. Christopher
1: Lambert is a good choice. The only thing I'll bitch about Christopher Lambert is he is miscast in a lot of things.
3: Not that it's his fault. He kind of is. But I mean, like. I think a lot of people have the misconception that he's like an action hero type.
1: Well, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking more like Michael Cimino casting him in the Sicilian as a Sicilian with a French accent. <laughs> and you just kind of go, no, that I like Christopher Lambert, but
3: absolutely
1: wrong for that
3: role, you know? With, with him with him you really need to kind of work around his voice you have to cast him as something that that voice is going to fit he's he's got a very particular and peculiar kind of way about him like there's there's something incredibly different uh of him as an actor just the way he talks and he has that weird like (laughs) kind of laugh that he seems to do and like everything so i think you you have to do something with him that's going to be Different. You can't just expect him to be the Sicilian guy or the generic love interest hero type. Like there has to be something kind of eccentric about him as a character, which you'll see movies that that excel when it comes to that like obviously he was he was very perfect for Highlander because that was a very weird movie to begin with that that one almost predicted what most like Japanese and like anime stuff would be later on down the line dudes in in trench coats with katanas spouting one liners like uh there can be only one and, that, and that's something you could really only picture Christopher Lambert being the, the lead in because it's just kind of a weird kooky movie that has a it's, it's somewhat of a period piece at times you know he he was—he was he was in he's lived since the days of world war ii and then old old-timey medieval scotland and all this stuff and he tries to put on a scottish accent but he can't he's one of those actors where i'm not sure if i'm not sure if he's a bad actor or if he's just got so much weird charisma that carries him through every movie he's in like he, he made um a pile of crap like Mortal Kombat worth watching because he, he plays such a weird version of, of Raiden that you would never he, he plays never the Christopher expect. Lambert version like of when Raiden he, when he's watching uh Johnny Cage's fight with Goro and he just goes yeah and he hits one of the ninja guys in the arm and just goes sorry like <laughs> it's just like weird little moments that he kind of seems to bring in that are I think part of his genuine personality and his sort of weird sense of humor like death Fate of billions will depend
1: upon you. (laughs) Ha ha ha! sorry like what the fuck is that okay the, the, there are I, sometimes it, 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 it seems so. there are sometimes when i see mm-hmm. christopher lambert in a movie i kind of go ooh is what, what what christopher lambert are we going to get in this movie you
3: know yeah what are we going to get with this role like you're, you're kind of um there are movies where he really fits well like he's fantastic in mean guns he's great in fortress like he really fits that role oh, very well as kind of a, a sympathetic uh sympathetic every man that's been arrested for you know obviously for, for being like wrongfully accused kind of thing. And he plays off of Vernon Wells very well. And he plays off of, God damn it. Jeffrey Combs, who's kind of weird in that movie. But, but that's, um, that's the interesting thing about Christopher Lambert, as you said, you never know what Christopher Lambert you're going to get. And it's always kind of a, it's a fun mixed bag. And he's always been one of those guys that I, I look forward to watching. And one of those guys who I can remember very vividly from when I was younger that I would, I would see him in stuff randomly, like watching Highlander with my dad or going to see Mortal Kombat in the theaters, that kind of stuff. It's like, I know that guy, he's, He's the guy with the weird voice. <laughs> like, but, okay, um,
1: there there are two roles where his voice, I think, fit very, very well. One is Highlander. Mm. Now, I, I yes. don't know if this is ass cover or not because one of the things that i'm talking about 1985 1986 critics had problem with was his voice they're like this is the worst accent i've ever heard <laughs> maybe this is just covering but on the commentary they talk about how because he's lived so long and in so many different countries they specifically asked him to have an accent that is not specific to any country or any
3: region yeah that actually makes it sense does, but it also
1: kind of sounds ass covery in retrospect doesn't it
3: but it makes sense for him to play a character like that who's kind of a, a man of so many different, of different cultures places. on account of, of living for, for so many different centuries is that he he doesn't sound like your average person. He's, he sounds like somebody who has lived in France for for many, many years, or Scotland, or Japan, or, or somewhere, like, it's just a different country for every, like, kind of century of his life, and he, he does, he has this kind of weird voice. Like, you don't even know what the... F- it is but you don't you don't know what it is in most of the movies he's in but it kind of makes sense in in the context of of highlander which i think is what makes that movie so memorable is it makes sense that christopher lambert would play a guy who's lived throughout all these centuries and he sounds weird for that reason and he he has those awkward laughing laughing cues because he's lived throughout so many different cultures (laughs) what kept
1: you I, I I actually like the you know the, the quieter moments because sometimes his accent in that movie flips like when he's yeah. when he's trying to show Roxanne Hart that he is immortal all of a sudden he slips mm. into and I have to go with the critics on this one a pretty bad Scottish accent
3: oh his Scottish accent is fucking abysmal it's real no cousin Google <laughs> I'm not I would bloody well walk out of here. <laughs>
2: Brought up Highlander, the one that so many know and love. Uh The film I adore him in, besides that one, will always be Mean Guns. I love that film so much. Uh, you introduced
3: me fun. to that film, too, I believe. I think you were yes. the one that showed it to me.
2: Yeah, great flick, lots of He's fun. you actually kind uh, of understated hard to that- in that one little bit well a bit, he only yeah worked I, two which i days. think
3: is why he he works so well in it
2: yeah he only ended up he was supposed to work three days he only worked two and he took off thankfully they had filmed all of the <laughs> scenes major sequences but he is understated he looks like he's having a great time though he, oh, he is, does he's an understated evil in that film he's a character who, while evil again he's showing that pain a real actor uh, and I have to say, again, there's a movie, I would say, all the actors knock it out of the park. There's even a few that you wouldn't say are normally
1: top-tier actors, but they're perfect.
2: Tom novels. Matthews is
3: super movie. fun in that. Cool film. Tom Matthews cool is super movie. fun in anything, really. That guy's such an underrated uh, actor.
1: Uh, I don't know. Return of the Living Dead 2 is pretty abysmal on every level.
3: <laughs> ah, well.
1: I like that film. I don't care. It's not part it's
3: one. Fun. No it's fun. It's
1: fun. It's fun. We're probably going to break this up into two episodes because we all still have picks we're going to go with, and we're coming to the end of the show. We'll go into the rest of our picks next week. But for right now, what do you think it is that draws people to certain actors? And I know we're saying actors as male. Maybe we'll we'll, we'll do a female one at some point. Where well, I'm, I'm not being sexist. There's a lot of female actors yeah. I really like. Just All of our picks happen to be dudes, but we're also dudes who grew up on action and sci-fi movies, which tends to be guys. What do you think the common thread is? Because, while next week I'm going to throw a wild card into this. All of these people are very, very good underrated actors that we've talked about this week. Like I said, next week I've got one that is debatable, but I love the guy anyway. Do you think, why do you think that's a lot of these actors, yes, Kurt Russell's had mainstream success and so forth, you know, Bill Paxton has, these are not in the same sentence as Tom Hanks and things like that, you know. These are not, your average person off the street is not going to know who Bill Paxton is. They're not going to know who Robert Forrester is. Some of them probably might not even know who Kurt Russell is by name. They would just know, oh, it, it's that guy. From that movie that was out last year, what do you think it is that draws us to these specific actors?
2: Well, uh, for me, it's always been the idea of embodying a character when I believe that they're that character.
1: And obviously,
2: it's it's a shared relationship. There has to be uh, uh, something on the page for this actor to embody. They, they, there has to be something in the dialogue, in the backstory, to bring the character alive. I said earlier with Robert Forrester, you know, alligator it, that wouldn't be as good if it had been written by anybody else. It's a marriage between the, the author and the actor coming together and creating someone that doesn't exist. And you're meeting them for the first time and you're drawn into the world. They're your, you know, your, your cipher, your avatar, uh, into this world. That's always what's fun. It's always fun to see where they're going to take you. People can criticize Quentin all they want. I think that's one thing he understands. And that's why he keeps casting these people is you can still have the best dialogue in the world, but if you don't have a good actor to recite it, no one's going
3: to buy it. I'd say it's just cuz somebody like um like Tom Hanks or these these actors that are more kind of A-list. There's something conventional about them. There's something that draws you in and kind of I don't I don't want to insult Tom Hanks too much. I mean, I know he's a he's a very good actor. Obviously, he's been in very memorable things, obviously. Toy Story was a big part of my childhood and everybody remembers him from other stuff like like Big or other other movies. Like obviously, he's he, He's, he's the actor he is for a reason. He's very charming, even in even in lower uh echelon roles where he was in um, it was in that slasher movie um he where he ended up alone. being one of the most memorable. Yes, it was very good. Okay. In that. There's something approachable about Tom Hanks. He's got kind of a he's got kind of a kind face. He seems like somebody who would be like your friend's dad. There's just something nice about him, I think. Whereas you've got some. You got people like Kurt Russell or Robert Forrest or or Sid Haig or Bill Paxton or Peter Weller, you know Christopher Lambert, all these people that are fantastic actors, but they're a little more. There's a bit of a a rough edge to them. They're they're kind of the the weird bunch. They're, they're not the types of guys that, that are going to be your friendly next door neighbor. They're not the guys that are somebody you would necessarily always get along with. Um, they're, they're more the, the types of guys in your life that might be maybe the weird gas station attendant or your, your kind of weird, uh, friend just by association from work or, or something. Just the kind of oddballs that, that stick out in your mind that you're like, I, that guy was memorable for this reason or another reason. More of the, the unconventional person that you think of in your life is, is more the type that, that somebody like Kurt Russell or somebody like Christopher Lambert, these types are, are going to be, uh, they're, they're not going to be your, oh, I remember having a, having a cookout with, uh, that guy or my neighbor or these great memories with my dad or whatever. They're, they're not those types. They're, they're more the types. They're, they're your drinking buddy they're your friend from work they're the weird clerk that you met at this place or that place which i think is what makes them so interesting and what makes them character actors and what makes them work so well as kind of grittier everyman characters and i personally would obviously love it if they were more a-list i mean kurt russell kind of is a list i mean he just showed up in a guardians of the galaxy film so he's he's doing well for himself but some of these guys are more fitted to smaller films quirkier films more indie indie based film because they have an edge to them that exists very much in reality when it comes to those those weird types of people that you would meet. And it kind of reminds you of that sort of stuff. And I think it's why they work so well in their character actor.
1: And I agree with that because there's there's one actor on that I was I didn't include. So that's why like Peter Jason just got edged out of my list. Peter Jason is one of those guys everybody has seen in a dozen T V shows, a hundred movies, and he always is like the crazy neighbor or the sleazy senator, he also gets Mm. big stuff. He's in Jurassic, the the new Jurassic world as a sleazy senator, you know, (laughs) and there are people just like Peter Jason that they just, in a weird way, they feel more like real people than Mm. like a Robert Downey Jr. And I'm not pissing on Robert Downey Jr., but Tony Stark doesn't feel like a real person.
3: It's more of, it's more of like an ideal person. It's like somebody you, you want to exist in reality rather than someone who really does.
1: Right. Just to go with like the Iron Man movies, Guy Pierce was a lot more of a realistic character than Tony Stark was.
3: Oh, absolutely. Both versions of him too. When he was more of the meek sort of nerdy guy at the beginning and when he became more, more kind of corporate, you could feel the, the arc in him as a person and you could see somebody like that in reality who was maybe a bit of a weird loser earlier in life and then found success and kind of cleaned up a little more. It was, it it felt very organic. Right.
1: And then, like I said, with like Peter Jason, you feel like this guy could be your neighbor or this guy could be a sleazy senator. I'm not crapping on Peter Jason. I've talked to him on the phone a few times. The guy is super nice, but he plays a good sleazy character. Well, you were bringing up about
2: Downey Jr. and some of these other guys. I think, and this might seem like a weird thought, but you know how there's some actors, they're good actors. We're not saying they're not good actors, but they have that quality or they choose those roles that it's like, it's like Shakespeare. Okay. You, you listen to Shakespeare and you know it's good dialogue. You know the actor is quite good performing it. They hit every note, every pentameter, like a, like a singer singing a song. It's not a natural thing. It's it's an intentional, like, this is art. This is me acting. And I think those guys hit that kind of role. Tony Stark is, in a way, sort of a Shakespearean-like character. You Mm -hmm. know, he's he's written in that, oh, you like him, but he's intentionally tragic and flawed. Yeah. You look at some of these other guys from Sid Haig to Michael Ironside, and I think when you said they have the edge, you're right, because this is the character, this is the actor that's dangerous. We all said when we saw Michael Ironside in an interview or sitting, hey, wow, they seem like such nice guys. Because when they play these roles, we think this is like walking, like your car just got a flat tire in a neighborhood you didn't like, you had to walk into a bar to ask use the phone. And these are the guys sitting in the corner staring at you. Yes, that's who these performers are.
3: Absolutely, are these
2: people right out of life. They look at you, you're trying to make the call, you turn around, and now they're standing next to you going, need a dime. You know, it, it and it just makes you want to crap your pants. These guys embody something you don't see every day, and that's why they're good at
3: it. Yes, it's it's something that, it reminds me of something Michael Ironside said, which was the way he plays characters that are in love versus characters that want to kill you. He says that love is more of an outwardly kind of, angry emotion but somebody that truly wants to kill you they're going to come at you with a with a smile they're going to be very personable and they're just going to be like i'm going to kill you and whereas Mm -hmm. someone that's in love is somebody who's going to be more infuriated and trying to fight for that that emotion or for that feeling, which, which I think it just shows how, how genuine he really is as a, as a person. And you can really feel that level of emotion in his performances.
2: Agreed. It's not unlike the Brian Cox Anthony Hopkins debate playing Hannibal Lecter.
3: Yes. Uh, when I saw, Where, you know, uh, Hopkins Cox was very outward. In, in his sort of, I'm an evil, evil man kind of thing. Whereas Brian Cox is very much, you know, he'll shake your hand, he'll give you a smile, and then he'll rip your throat out. You know, that sort of thing.
2: Yeah, Hopkins is your Shakespearean performance. Oh, yeah. Whereas Brian Cox said, I'm not playing evil as if it's a thing. I'm playing someone that is lacking good. In other yes. words, he doesn't have something, he's lacking something. And there is a difference.
1: Have you ever seen Blood in the Moonlight, Well, It's actually quite black. Alright, on that note, we're gonna, we're gonna go. Next week, we'll finish up our lists, and in the meantime, I encourage the listeners to try and figure out who will be on our lists for next week based on what we talked about this week. I think that might be interesting to see just how far off, because I've seen both of your lists, I wanna see how far off the audience is. (laughs) That said, where can people find Frederick Fritz?
2: Uh, still same place, just the movie apocalypse page on Facebook, not much going on right now. Where can people find
1: The Petter?
3: Ah, uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter at Zinematica, on YouTube the Cinemasochist, Facebook the Cinemasochist, of course 1201beyond.com, of course Patreon also at Zinematica, and I have a new video out. Atlantis Interceptors, go check it out before Red Letter Media flags it.
1: Yes, that will happen because <laughs> w- when, when, when Charlie and I did a, did a, uh, riff on that one and we put it up under the name Raiders of Atlantis, Red Letter Media flagged us because they had the movie. Yes, it
3: got dealt with. And let's not say it's necessarily them flagging me, but it might it be was, one, of, no, their it wasn't one was. of their advertising bots or whatever, but go check that out before I have to dispute the rights on it. It's a bullshit
1: situation <laughs> I had to go through. <laughs> the, the fact that – I'm not even going to – okay, fine. You can also find Peter at 1201beyond.com, just like you can find me at
3: 1201beyond.com. You can contact this sh- – With a lot of cool shirts yep. and media and stuff. We, we got not only my shirts, but some really nice radiodrome and what-the-fuck shirts and all sorts of stuff. Give us money. We do need money. <laughs> there, there,
1: there, there is also the, uh, the Patreon, where if you guys – Everyone who listens to the show, if you all donated $1 a month, we might be able to get professional-grade equipment.
3: Imagine that. Yeah, you know what? I've got, like, five—I think it's, like, 5,000 subscribers. If, like, if five—if 800 of you were to donate a dollar every month, I could probably quit my job. Exactly. So get on that shit. What's wrong with you fuckers? Like, come on. A dollar. You can
1: contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Try to be a cut above— Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night.